It's our privilege today to have Dr. Lloyd Kim to uh, preach. Dr. Kim, is, if you read about him in the, uh, the missions brochure, is the coordinator for Mission to the World. For those that are not familiar with our denomination, that is our agency that primarily focuses or exclusively focuses on cross-cultural missions all around the globe. And Dr. Kim, back in 2014, was nominated, I guess, and then installed in 2015 to be the coordinator of that worldwide ministry. It's a huge job. Uh, I told him I wouldn't want it, but I mean from the standpoint of, of the needs that it represents and, and what a critical and pivotal place, and we know God called him to that. Also, with his background, not only educational background, but he and his family served in the Philippines for a number of years, and then most recently they served several years. Um, where was it? Yeah, Cambodia. We talked about it at length yesterday. Uh, so we welcome you to the pulpit today. Good morning. Uh, it's been a, a wonderful privilege and joy to spend this weekend with you and hearing the testimonies of the missionaries, but also uh, celebrating together what God has been doing across the globe. And I do want to express a very heartfelt thank you for First Press Macon for all those years of faithful prayer support and financial support of our missionaries and our mission. Uh, we, we can't do what we do without you, and so we are very grateful for this partnership in the gospel. If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to a very familiar passage, one which we read in our liturgy already. It comes from Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 to 20. And this is God's very own word. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray. Father, help us to understand these words uh, through the power of your Holy Spirit. And through that same Spirit, help me to proclaim your message today. In Jesus' name, amen. As mentioned uh, earlier, our family had the privilege of serving as missionaries in Southeast Asia for about 10 years. Question, who was the most respected king in Southeast Asia? Now, I would argue it was the former king of Thailand. You see, this king wasn't simply a figurehead, as, as many kings are across the world, but he had real influence over his subjects. In fact, the people loved him. They revered him. Some of you might have remembered uh, just a few years ago, there was quite a bit of civil unrest in Thailand. People were demonstrating on the streets, and it got to a point where um, 
It simply took the king of Thailand to come out before his subjects and to address them. And he would say, uh, stop your demonstrations and behave as Thai ought to behave. <laughs> and at that, the people would drop their signs, pick up their things, and go home. That would never happen here. <laughs> Do you realize, beloved, that we also have a king? His name is Jesus. And what do you think people say about us who belong to his kingdom? Do they say, well, his people, they don't, they don't really respect him very much? Or do they say, at his word, they will drop everything and follow his command? This morning, we're going to reflect on these final words of our Savior before he ascended into heaven. And as we do so, we will see that this command that he gives is first a commission of grace. Second, it is a commission with authority. And finally, it is a commission for all disciples. I think the first thing the Lord is telling us today is, well, quite frankly, we don't really deserve to be a part of this kingdom-building work. If you remember, the Great Commission mandate comes in the context of the resurrection. It is, in fact, a resurrection passage. Can you imagine what must have been going on in those disciples' minds when they heard early Sunday morning from Mary Magdalene that Jesus is alive and that he wants to meet us in Galilee? You see, just three days earlier, they, they saw their Lord crucified on a cross. They saw him killed. They saw him murdered. How could it be that he's alive? If you remember, um, the disciples at the time were actually in Jerusalem when they heard the news. And Galilee is probably about 60 to 75 miles away from where they were, and so it probably took them about five or six days to travel from Jerusalem to Galilee. Can you imagine what they must have talked about on the way there? Perhaps they remembered the last time they were all gathered together in the Garden of Gethsemane. Perhaps echoing in their ears were the last words they heard from their Lord. You can't even keep watch with me for one hour. Rise, behold, my, my betrayer is at hand. And if you remember the scene when, when the angry mob came with clubs and swords to take Jesus away, well, all of his disciples fled. They abandoned him when he needed them most. Certainly, Peter must have remembered how Jesus turned and looked at him in the courtyard of the high priest after the rooster crowed. And so I can imagine these disciples walking to the place where they would meet Jesus filled with conflicting emotions, not only wonder and awe that maybe Jesus really is alive, but also shame, guilt, and maybe even fear that they would have to face the one that they abandoned. 
When I was about 10 years old, my, my older brother, uh, who's just a year older than I, and, and a neighborhood friend were playing at a nearby park a couple blocks from our house. And while we were playing there, minding our own business, uh, these older neighborhood bullies uh, started teasing us from far away. And being rascally boys that we were, we yelled back, uh, not expecting what would happen next. They started chasing after us. And we all had our bikes there at the time, and so we hopped on our bikes and we pedaled as fast as we could back home where it was safe on our front lawn, and we were screaming, and I remember hearing screaming, and our hearts were beating fast, and, and of course I was the first back to our front lawn. And then my friend came next to me, to me, and then we looked back over our shoulders, and there was my brother, a block away. The chain had fallen off his bike. And sure enough, those older bullies came by and they grabbed him and they took a couple cheap shots and then they took off and there he was, weeping, humiliated, angry. He picked up his bike, he walked it over to where we were standing, where we saw this whole thing unfold, we were dumbfounded, he, he throws down his bike in anger, he comes up to me and he slugs me in the stomach and he says, where were you? Didn't you hear me cry for help? After this incident, we asked our dad to teach us Taekwondo. <laughs> it only lasted a couple weeks. You see, we should expect Jesus to meet his disciples and to slug them, right? Say, where were you? Or at least to rebuke them for their cowardice. But he doesn't. He doesn't rebuke them. He doesn't reject them. In fact, when he sees Mary Magdalene, what does he tell her? Go and tell my, my brothers to meet me in Galilee. He still calls them his brothers. And even when some were standing before him, doubting him, he doesn't mention any of their failures, any of their sins. What we see here in this passage, in this encounter with Jesus and his disciples after the resurrection is a picture of God's incredible grace and mercy. What did they deserve? They deserve to be abandoned, right? They deserve to be denied before the Father. They deserve to be excluded from the kingdom. And yet, instead of rebuke Jesus, what does he do? He forgives them. And then he enlists them in this kingdom service, saying, finish what I began. Who are these disciples? Well, they're us. We're just like them. Doubtful, hesitant, fearful, maybe even full of shame, full of guilt. Now, I don't know about you, but when someone that I've offended that I actually respect overlooks my offense, I can't help but respect that person even more, right? And when he demonstrates to me that my relationship with him is so secure and there's no strings attached for his affection for me, I can't help but love him even more. And when I'm convinced that he sees me for who I am with all of my ugliness and sin and selfishness and pride and still loves me, I can't help but be passionate for what he is passionate for. 
And so we ask ourselves, where does passion for missions come from? It comes from a deep passion for our Savior who has lavished grace upon grace upon us. You see, this isn't guilt trip motivation for missions. But that which springs from a sincere love and affection for our King, for our Savior. And so, yes, we don't deserve the privilege and honor of representing our King in this kingdom-building work. And yet he allows us this by his grace. The second thing I believe the Lord is telling us today is is that we don't have to be afraid. We, We don't have to be afraid to engage in this work of missions. Why? Well, as our passage says, it's because Jesus, the one who sends us, has been given all authority both in heaven and on earth. And so that when we go, we go with his authority. My fear, if I'm quite honest, beloved, is that we don't really believe this. We don't believe that that we send support and go with the authority of Jesus. You know, when I talk to people about missions, they they usually fall into one of two extremes. The, The first is just utter fear and anxiety about thinking about missions, evangelism. Their hearts race as they think about sharing their faith with another person or entering into a discipleship relationship with somebody or, God forbid, even praying whether God is calling them to long-term foreign missions. Why? It's because we're afraid. Do we believe that Jesus has all authority both in heaven and on earth? Do we believe that we send and that we support, and that we go with his authority. So if utter fear and anxiety is one extreme, what would be the other? Overconfidence and pride in our own abilities and gifts. Sometimes some of us think that because we are educated, because we are wealthy, because we're from the West, that somehow the world has to listen to our message. We think all authority has been given to us, and so we go out in our own strength and confidence to do God's work. When we first came to the Philippines, um, I had the privilege of visiting the Presbyterian Theological Seminary there in Cavite. Uh, Keep in mind, I I had just finished my my Ph.D. in New Testament studies, and uh, thinking about all the work and the toil that I took to get this degree, I was secretly thinking in my heart, these students are so lucky to have someone like like me, right? Uh, So when I go to this school, I meet these students, and they're quite friendly, and one of them asks me very innocently, he says, so um, what year in school are you here? (laughs) I thought I was a student. I was so offended, but you know, missionaries, we can't be outwardly proud, so I tried to hide my my uh, 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 disappointment. I said, well, I don't go to school here. He, he replied, well, are you going to apply? <laughs> we need to ask ourselves some pretty hard questions, don't we? What kind of authority are we basing our confidence upon? Is it worldly authority? <laughs> our wealth, our education, our gifts, our power? 
Or do we believe that Jesus has all authority, both in heaven and on earth, and that we send and that we support and that we go with his authority? And the truth is, it is only by the authority and power of God's Holy Spirit in us that we could do anything really of lasting value for his kingdom. You know the phrase at the end of the Great Commission? Behold, I am, what does it say? With you to the end of the age. I think we often read that and, and think perhaps sometimes that as we do the work of missions that Jesus is somehow hovering over us, watching us. Uh, I don't think that's quite the picture that is painted in this passage. Rather, it's a simple statement of Jesus' Holy Spirit indwelling us and equipping us to this task of making disciples among the nations. Do you believe this? Do you? You see, when this simple truth of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit goes from our heads to our hearts, two things happen at the same time. Number one, we get incredible confidence. And number two, we get incredible humility. You see, for us who are hesitant and doubtful and fearful, we recognize that Jesus is calling us to a task that cannot fail. And he's equipping us with a power that has no bounds. At the same time, we recognize it's not our power, it's not our authority by which the kingdom advances, but it is by his. Do we believe that he is with us? even to the end of the age. So number one, the Lord is telling us that we don't deserve to be a part of this kingdom-building work, and yet he calls us by his grace. And number two, he is telling us we cannot do this work of missions in our own strength and authority, but we can by his. And finally, the Lord is telling us this morning that that every one of us who calls himself or herself a disciple or follower of Jesus needs to be involved in making more disciples. From our passage, what are those two main tasks that Jesus associates with making disciples? The first, baptism, right? Uh, The second, teaching. Why baptism? Baptism signifies one's entrance into the community of Jesus' disciples. It requires this radical commitment that essentially says, Today I die, and I am reborn by the power of the Spirit to live as a follower of Jesus. Why teaching? Teaching is the means that Jesus uses to mature and nurture disciples to live as citizens of the kingdom of God. And so not only are we to lead people into this radical commitment of following Jesus, but we are to nurture their faith by teaching them to obey everything that Jesus commands, including this command to what? Go and make disciples. Part of the everything is this command to go and make disciples. 
And so you see, part and parcel then of being a disciple is making a disciple. And the truth is, we cannot make disciples unless we are disciples. And so let me ask you this morning, have you made that radical commitment to die to self and to live for Jesus? And are we committed to a lifetime of learning and growing in the gospel of grace? Maybe some of you are saying, we're not ready for this. Isn't it the pastor's job to baptize and to teach? And yes, of course, God has his ordained service servants to play a unique role in the church. But you see, we simply cannot get away from the fact that we are to teach others to obey everything that Jesus commands, including this command to go and make disciples. Every one of us has a role to play in seeing the kingdom advance. Four pastors uh, go to a restaurant, and uh, after they're seated, um, the waitress finally comes over after a delay. She has the menus. She throws them down on the table, and she says, what do you want? She acts so rude, in fact, that the whole evening meal is ruined. Uh, The most senior pastor, after they pay the bill, calls the waitress over. He wants to have a word with her. And there she stands um, over the table. He looks her right in the eye and he, he says, seems like you've had a hard day. And then he hands her a $100 bill. She is so moved by this act of kindness, she starts to cry. She starts to pour out her heart, all, all the trouble and the pain that she's experienced. And then right there, the, the pastor shares with her the hope that we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and she receives Jesus as her Savior. Out in the parking lot, uh, the senior pastor turns to his colleagues and he says, and now I want each of you to give me $25. (laughs) You see, every one of us can be involved in making disciples. Some leading people to this radical commitment and others, well, well, you know. Faith promise. But of course, uh, Jesus' teachings, what are they? Well, they're they're gospel teachings, are they not? We don't have to teach our disciples that somehow they have to have these, these perfect moral lives. Discipleship is simply showing another person how to apply the gospel to all the areas of our life, to our marriage, to how we raise our kids, to how we think about our work and our friends and our, our place in society. And so when the center of discipleship is on the gospel, the focus is not on us, but it's on Jesus. We don't have to pretend to be something we're not. In fact, what is our message? <laughs> our message is we're just as broken and messed up as you We still need this gospel for our own pride and insecurities and loneliness and sin and brokenness. And so we teach our disciples simply this, that we are merely beggars showing other beggars where to find food. Now we can certainly be involved in making disciples here, here in our own hometown. 
Certainly many nations have come. But you see, the Great Commission has not changed. And it is very clear that our Lord is calling his church to go, to go to other places, to go where the darkness is so strong, to go and fulfill his redemptive purposes for the world. Jesus, our risen King, exalted to the highest place, hands us the baton and says, go to the nations and proclaim my gospel of the kingdom of God. You see, this task is not an option. It's not something we do if we have extra time. It's included in the very definition of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus. And so it helps define our purpose and calling here in this life. And so, beloved, do we, do we respect our king? Well, our king, he, <laughs> he delivered us from the bondage that we have from our sins and from this fear of death. And our king, he made us free. And so, beloved, let us respect our king. And may his vision for the nations be our vision as well. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we we thank you that we can call you Father. And we're the first to confess that we don't deserve your lavish love and affection through your son Jesus. And we do pray, Father, that we would dwell deeply upon your grace and that it would indeed add fuel to missions, fire in our hearts. And that this church, First Press Macon, would continue to be a light, not only here in this area, in this state, in this country, but to the ends of the earth. Would you call and send laborers into your harvest field? We ask this in faith. Through the powerful name of Jesus, amen.